Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we'll talk about biting insects now that the weather's getting nicer. Speaking of the outdoors, Karina Delgado from our Audacity sister station in Washington, D.C., 94.7 The Drive, caught up with the CEO of the Conservation International Group. We'll find out what's going on there. We'll also hear from Ted Dentersmith. He's the founder of What School? could be and he has details on what he says is the time to reimagine education but we're going to start off by introducing you to Jackie Galvin she's the development and communications director for Griffin Pond Animal Shelter and she's going to tell us about their upcoming fundraiser Jackie welcome nice to have you here with us on special edition today and you have a friend there in the background who we're going to mention right off the bat because I think she's our timer. She lets us know how I much think time. She is. How much? How much yes. time? Yes. She'll call it. She'll she'll say, "Hey, I'm a. It's time to uh, come on out of your office and hang out with me for a little while." Exactly. And one of the places that a lot of folks are going to be hanging out is coming up in Montdale, and that's going to be in May. So before we talk more about Griffin Pond Animal Shelter, let's talk about this event that you have coming up. Okay, well, we are having a mega prize bingo and more on Sunday, May 16th from 3 to 7 p.m. at the Scott Township Hose Company in Montdale. And this event was held, I believe, two years ago, and it went very well, and it was supposed to be held last year at but unfortunately, because of COVID, it had to be postponed. Yes. But we are thrilled to be having a public event again where we could actually have the public at it. You are one of the organizations that also has been affected during the entire COVID pandemic. And the reason that you raised that money has not gone away and has probably gotten even more intense. So can you give us a little bit of an idea where the money that you're going to be raising during your upcoming fundraiser is going to be going toward? Oh, for sure. Us and so many other organizations who depend on the community to support them are still in that very same place of depending on the community to support them to keep their missions moving forward. 
for us at Griffin Pond Animal Shelter, our mission is to take care of animals who are neglected or mistreated or simply, you know, maybe they were surrendered due to an owner not being able to care for them anymore, perhaps because of age or perhaps there was someone who passed away in the family and, you know, they didn't have anywhere for their animal to go. So they'll bring them here. And sometimes we just have animals that we find. You know, there's been people, someone found a domestic rabbit just along the roadside one day, and they just picked it up and brought it here. And I, he was recently adopted. I just got a big kick out of the name they gave him here at the shelter. They were calling him Rabbit De Niro, which oh. I really got a big charge out of. <laughs> I don't know why. I also liked when they had the ferret named Ferret Fawcett. Those two <laughs> names just really, really, really cracked me up. They come up with some clever names um, at the shelter, but... They, and luckily, all of them were adopted, as many of our animals are, thank God. Um, but we do care for 200 animals on a daily basis. For every animal that goes out and is placed in a, a loving home, there is another one coming right in behind it that is looking for that same sort of gift from some person in the community. But yes, you're right. We, like so many other nonprofits, do depend on the community for help. And this event will help us to raise money to help replenish our medical care fund. Um, that's one of our funds that is depleted very quickly because any pet owner out there will know that pet care and veterinary bills are not cheap by any means. And we want to be sure that all of the animals that we have here get the exact treatment and care that they need in order to get well from anything that they might have so they can get adopted out to go to a new home and get their second start in life. Can we kind of go over a little bit of the adoption process, Jackie? Because sometimes we hear, I've gone to so so many different places, I put applications in, I don't hear from the shelter, I don't hear from the organization. In your case, how does something like that work? Well, the first thing that they ask people to do who are interested in adopting a pet is to fill out an application. What they do is they have the applications available on our website which is griffinpondanimalshelter.com. And when you go to that website, there is a tab at the top of the page about adoptions. And when you click on that, it will take you, you know, to a place where you could see all of our adoptable pets. There'll be a button you could click on. So when you click on that, you'll get to see, you know, which cats are available, what dogs are available, or any other animals like that we may have which we do from occasion have a rabbit or a ferret or a guinea pig, you know, a bird, different things will come in from time to time that we don't normally have. But we have mostly, you know, dogs and cats. So people can view the adaptable animals there. And there's also a button um, that they could click on called Pet Finder, and that will show them some animals too. Our Facebook page also has a lot of our animals that are available for adoption. And people can look on there and read a little bit about them and and get to know them a little better to see if that particular animal is a good fit for them and their family. So once they have an animal in mind that they like, what they're asked to do is to click on our website, again, griffinpondanimalshelter.com. And when they go to the adoption page, there's a button they could click, click on called Adoption Application. They can fill out the application. It's an online form. 
And then that form is immediately sent to our adoption department. From there, the applications are processed. And if you're approved to adopt, you are then, you know, invited by the shelter to come in and take the next steps, which they'd say, you know, I'm going to call, say, Rex, the dog, you know, is available. You were interested in Rex. Why don't you come in and do a meet and greet with Rex? Or they'll find out, you know, maybe you have another pet at home. Let's make sure Rex and your other pets get along well before we adopt them out. Because what we want to be sure is that the animal that gets placed is happy with the home they're in and that the home that's receiving them is happy as well. We want to make sure it's a good match for everybody involved. That's why they're forever homes. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and, and again, I think sometimes people might get a little bit standoffish. They might be a little bit disappointed because everybody wants a puppy. But a lot of times when you're bringing in a family with children, sometimes the folks who are looking at it Uh, you know, unobjectively rather than just, oh, we'd like to have our kids grow up with the puppy. But that's that could be double the work when you have young kids and puppies. So sometimes that takes a little bit of discussion. And, you know, that that then, of course, whenever you take on uh, an animal, you also have to consider, as you said, veterinary care. You want to go out of town. You have to find someone to take care of them. Um, You know, all these other things. So it's not just how cute it's for the long haul. Exactly. It's, as you said, their forever home. It's it's their place that they're going to, you know, live out the the rest of their natural life. And, And we want to be sure that they're going to an environment that they'll like and that the environment, like I said, that they'll be a good fit for the family. A lot of times um, with our pets, before they're even mentioned um, to the public that they're available, whether that be through, you know, our website, Pet Finder, our Facebook page, um, they always make sure with the animals they'll test them, you know, with like another cat. Like let's say you have one cat and let's say, well, let's see if this cat, new cat that we got in, let's see if it's cat friendly. Let's see if it feels comfortable with another animal. Let's see if it's dog friendly. Let's see how, and then, you know, if they can get through that, then you see, well, let's see how they are with kids or let's see how they are, you know, with a man versus a woman. Because sometimes if they came from an environment where they were abused by, you know, an adult, and if it was a woman, we want to be sure that they don't have a fear of women or, you know, vice versa. If it was a man, we want to make sure they're not afraid, you know, of, of men. Because if they are, and our trainers do work with them very closely to help them adapt any behaviors they might have that aren't good for them and good for, you know, a placement in a family, what they'll do is work through those feelings with them, but they'll be sure to let the uh, potential adoptees know this dog came from an environment where, you know, sadly he was used as a bait dog and like a dog fighting ring or, you know, things like that. So they want to be sure that the animal is a good match, like I said, for them. But I'm always amazed by the animals that you could tell that they may have been in a, a dog fighting situation, let's see. And you'll see like the little scars on their feet, like mm-hmm. around the nose and around their muzzle. And, and you know that things weren't easy for them. But God loves them. Some of them are the sweetest when you meet them and they're like that. And you, you just, I want to bring everybody home every day. <laughs> when I took this job, people said, you're going to want to take everybody home. And I said, I know what I said. I had to teach myself that I have to 
make sure that I do my job to help bring in funding so we could get them so every to a good home that everybody can benefit from having a pet because it really is a joy to have them oh, in your life. I don't know what I would do without mine. Absolutely not. And in the past, I've one of mine came from Griffin Pond. And oh, uh, yes, absolutely. So we know the great work that everybody does up there. So now, Jackie, let's get back into what your great work is going to be this fundraiser that's coming up in May. Sounds like it's going to be a big event. Oh, it's going to be a great one because we are so glad to be able to be back with all of our friends in the community. And um, I had mentioned before, they normally would have 300 guests at this event in the past. Now, in order to maintain social distancing and adhere to not spreading any COVID to avoid that issue, we have to cut it down to 200 people this time so we could spread everybody out better. And people do need to wear masks and adhere to socially distancing guidelines. Um, When they're seated, though, at their table, they can take their mask off like they would in a restaurant. So, you know, but if they get up to walk from the table, it's the same rules that apply if you're in a restaurant, your mask has to go back on. And there will be opportunities to get up and move around because in addition to the 16 games of bingo that we'll have, the four specials and the door prize, and all of those prizes are valued at over $100 each. We'll also have a basket raffle, a 50-50, and we'll have food and drinks available for sale as well. And where where is this taking place? It's it's going to be in uh, uh, Scott Township, right? Yes, at the Scott Township Hose Company, and their address is 1027 Montdale Road, Montdale. And um, that information is all on our website and Facebook page if anybody needs to, you know, to read about it. And it's Sunday, May 16th. Now, you do have tickets available at the door? Yes, yes. And if you buy them in advance, you could save a little bit of money. They are $20 in advance, and they're 25 at the door. We do advise people to buy them in advance because it probably, we're hoping, and it probably will be sold out. And we have, you know, we do still have tickets available. But as I, in my experience, I, it's always as an event grows closer, people, they, they're they quicker to buy their tickets then as the, an event draws near. Mm-hmm. So they can buy the tickets online. There is a link on our website where you can get them or they can also stop by the shelter, and we're open from 9 to 4 uh, every day of the week, seven days a week, 9 to 4. And if they come to the front desk, they can buy them there. They do have some tickets there. In the shelter, you need to have a mask on as well. well. Some people might be saying, I would love to be able to do this, but I can't make it. So the shelter on a regular basis is always accepting donations, contributions, and how does that happen? Oh, absolutely. Anybody who can't come, um, they are welcome to sponsor someone to attend in their place. We do have that. Like, you know, they're welcome to, to give the amount of money that they normally think they may have spent, whether it was just for their, you know, ticket for admission, or maybe they say, well, I have my ticket for my admission. That was 20 and maybe I would have spent $10 on raffle tickets, so I'm going to throw another 10 on top of it. You know, and they want to send $30 to us. Like, that would be fine. They can also be a sponsor of the event, which that's open to whatever amount they want to send. 
basically any amount they would want to send will be gratefully received. We rely on the public and we're so lucky because the public is so good to us. It's such a unique work that's done here. We are the biggest animal advocacy and um, animal shelter in the region. And we're so glad that people are so good about supporting us and, and recognizing what we do because we don't receive any sort of subsidies from the government. There's no, you know, support that we get money to say, okay, we're going to send X amount of dollars to the animal shelters because, you know, they need help doing what they do. As great as that would be to get, unfortunately, that's not in um, the budgets for, you know, municipalities and, you know, on the state and federal level. Um, But we do rely on donations from those groups at the municipalities if they want to give. And we also rely on the public to give. And thankfully, a lot of people recognize the value and importance of animals in our lives, and they are willing to help us. And it's not just monetary sometimes. I know that it was not too long ago on your Facebook page, you had a uh, post about needing things like sheets and towels and things like that as well. Exactly, exactly. Um, we, we do have people who are gracious and, and bring us their gently used items, which we're glad to have because we go through them rather quickly at the shelter. And people are very good about, you know, as they, especially with doing their spring cleaning, they might have things they're disposing of. And rather than sending it into the garbage or a landfill, why not send it here, you know, to help out the animals? You could be providing a nice warm bed or you could be providing, you know, a nice comfy spot for somebody to cuddle in. The, the one cat that lives in the lobby, he's in a little cage down there. And, you know, because the shelter's so full, we have a couple of them in the lobby and, um, and it's more, too, they can get a nice, you know, socialize. They get to see some extra faces they might not see. And um, I usually go down um, to stretch my legs and take a little walk through the shelter every day. And I always see them and I always peek in and say, hey, how are you doing? And talk to them a little. And the one always has his head under the towel, which just cracks <laughs> me up. And I said, "Are you, and, you know, he likes to hide, which that just cracks me up. Sometimes he's out and sometimes he's under his towel. So you can see how they do get used in a lot of different ways, not just for cleaning up, for fun, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and wait a minute. I don't hear the puppy. The puppy must have... No, I, you know, I, I... Let me see if I could peek out. I, I see the cage, but I... I can't see with my door shut through my window. It's not a long enough window to see if she's still sitting in there. She may have went downstairs. Uh, they may have taken her downstairs because I've seen some people coming in and out of the main door of the office suite. So maybe they took her downstairs. Oh, I was going to say because be. she must she must have been she must have approved of everything that you've been saying because I didn't hear her in the background attempting to correct. She may you. have. <laughs> yeah, she may have. She she may have. She would certainly know <laughs> so, if I'm doing my job or not. You know, she would know what we were doing and because she wants to get some help, too. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Before we have to let you go, let's do it one more time. Give us the the date, the day, the how to get the tickets, all that great information. With us is Jackie Galvin from Griffin Pond Animal Shelter. They have a big event coming up. Take it away, Jackie. Okay. It's the Mega Prize Bingo and More benefiting Griffin Pond Animal Shelter. And it is on Sunday, May the 16th, from 3 to 7 p.m. at the Scott Township Hose Company, 
1027 Montdale Road in Montdale. Admission is $20 in advance and $25 at the door. You can buy tickets online by visiting griffinpondanimalshelter.com or by stopping by the shelter any day of the week between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. And And if you have any questions, please feel free to call us. My number is 570-586-3700 and my extension is 522. And a lot of the information, as I mentioned, is available on our website, which is, once again, griffinpondanimalshelter.com. And I also have to ask, are you going to perhaps have any of the adoptable animals making an appearance during the event? We're hoping to. We're hoping to. If we can get uh, a certain, enough volunteers to work at the event and to have some that could bring the animals, we would like to do that. We have a, a policy, you know, sometimes when we do, they call them adoption events. When people come to them in the public, they're disappointed because they think they expect to see the whole shelter at it. <laughs> and I can understand why they would think that because before I worked here, I probably would have thought the same exact thing. But I've learned that it doesn't work that way because they like to have one human being to one animal. So it's one person to every animal to take care of them. And kitties don't always travel so well. Mm. Some have to sit in their kennel and... It might be kind of stressful for them. They might not like that. I know when I take my cats for a ride from time to time, when well, usually they're going to the vet, so they know it's not like taking a dog for a ride in the car. But I think my one cat, though, would like a ride in the car. She's silly like that. She's funny. But anyway, um, so we can't bring too many of them out with us for that reason. We'd have to have, you know, enough volunteers to handle them. And, and, and that's another thing. We're, we're glad to have volunteers here at the shelter um, as, you know, little by little, we open up to the, you know, as the COVID, thankfully, it looks like there's a light at the end of, end of the tunnel with it. So we're little by little making strides to move forward to come back to the way things were pre-COVID. But we're always happy to have volunteers. And, you know, there's always a special type of volunteer when they're able to handle, you know, an animal because then that way, you know, they, they're welcome to bring them out for different events so it's a good thing and i will be so disappointed if one of them that you bring is not named bingo (laughs) maybe we'll have to just call it bingo for the day even if it's not (laughs) thanks again for jackie galvin to visit us here on special edition from the griffin pond animal shelter in lackawanna county log on to their website and facebook page for information don't go away what schools could be that's next on special edition Next on Special Edition, I'll introduce you to Ted Dentersmith. He's the founder of What Schools Could Be, and he says it's time to reimagine education. Give us a little bit of an overview of what school could be. How did that come about? Yeah, I I spent a career in the world of venture capital and entrepreneurship, so I've got a pretty good vantage point on the creative economy. And over a period of time, I realized that schools are pushing kids to excel at increasingly irrelevant low-level skills, you know, memorizing material, replicating low-level procedures, following instructions. And what kids rise to, what we need these kids to show as adults are things, you know, creative problem-solving, curiosity, audacity, you know, empathy, leadership. And when I saw that, I said, man, this is a massive disconnect. If our 
schools are pushing kids to do well at, in this narrow little inside the box set of skills that computers do perfectly. And in the process, they're losing what will serve them really well as adults. This isn't a small issue. And so that's defined my last 10 years. I'm a big believer in the power of film. I uh, started with a documentary called Most Likely to Succeed, which I think is the best film ever made on education, thanks to an amazing director. But that was Sundance, a bunch of top film festivals. We've screened it all over Pennsylvania. I've been to a lot of community screenings with that film in Pennsylvania. We've done 10,000 screenings in 35 different countries. And that sort of has led to a set of resources to support our courageous, dedicated, innovative educators in the field that sort of draws on what they're doing that's working, not what I think they should do, but what they tell me they're doing that's really effective. And I think I'm unusual among business ranks for people who get interested in education. I think most business types kind of come in and say, I went to school, I know how everything about it, here's what you have to do. And I I take a very different approach. You know, I did go to school, way too many years of it. But, you know, I'm not an expert, right? I mean, our classroom practitioners have the expertise and I think that's why I, I get a lot of support from teachers. Let me put it that way, because I think they say, hey, this is somebody's come along who actually wants to hear from us about what's working. And we'll put the time and energy to try to capture it with great video based resources and then share this broadly, not in the spirit of here's what you have to do. But hey, here's what somebody's doing. This looks really interesting. What do you think? It's a whole innovation change model. It's the exact opposite of sort of the high stakes, standardized, you know, data driven, no child left behind regime, which I argue actually left all kids behind. <laughs> and it's really more what are our bright spots and how do we build on them? Well, I was fascinated when I read um, that it started out with this film and that you are involved in film because, again, that's a great medium in order to get people involved. And especially now that we're talking about, and there, there's so much I'd like to talk with you, Ted, but I got to get down to the brass tacks here. When, yeah. when, we're, ta- when we're talking about um, the pandemic, do you think that, and I, I like the line that uh, came in the information, now's the time to reimagine education. So what do you see as education being reimagined in this hopefully soon post-pandemic world? Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the real world, right, the real world doesn't value people, neighbors, family members, employees who have to be told every minute of the day what they do. You know, that's not who we want to work with. You know, you want to work with somebody that can identify ways to make the organization or the community or the world better, organize their efforts, draw on resources effectively, create something bold, and then make it happen. You know, that's what we value. And, and we do so little of that in, in most schools. You know, most schools are all about here are the hoops, jump through them. The faster you jump through them, the better your scores will be. And if you jump through enough of them, we'll then let you pay a lot of money to jump through the college hoops. And then once you've jumped through those, you can pay even more money to jump through the master's degree hoops. And then these young adults come out and they, they wonder why it's hard to get a job. When really nobody values somebody that you, you've got to tell them what to do every step of the way. And so to me, the, the, the basic things about human nature, right? You know, people are at their best when they set their own goals. People are at the best when they have voice in what they want to do. People are at their best when they believe in the mission. And, and should that be all of school? 
Maybe for me it would. I think it might make most people nervous. Should it be from a school? Absolutely. And I don't get any pushback on that. That part of things should be a big part of school. And yet we've let the standardized curriculum and the focus on these high stakes test and low level questions push it all to the side. And that's what we're fighting for. We want to restore balance. We want to support those innovative teachers that are doing great things. We want to give them cover so that their community, the parent base, the school board will stop looking at them and saying, oh, there's this kind of oddball teacher and, you know, like they can't manage their class because the kids are laughing and seem really enthusiastic. We want to give them cover and support so that people say, oh, maybe we should pay attention to this. Maybe they're doing some things that actually should influence what we're doing more broadly. When did enthusiasm become a negative? Yeah, when did it, you know, but you will see that, Paula. You'll see, you know, teachers tell me this all the time. You know, they're doing this. I'll observe their class. The kids love it. The kids are just bouncing from wall. You know, they're so joyful. I'll interview the kids. They know what they're talking about. And, and, and yet if that teacher gets complaints from, you know, oh, there's too much noise in your classroom, mm. or if parents say, well, you didn't cover memorizing the capitals of the U.S. or some, you know, bogus sort of thing that parents focus on. I did this when I was a kid. It must have been the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be discouraging. And so we've got this community, this whatschoolcouldbe.org community of like-minded teachers, educators, fighting so fiercely for the futures of their kids, doing these creative things in their classrooms and schools, finding other people who believe in that. And, and understanding that we can start sharing these perspectives broadly. Because I'll tell you, when people see the film most likely to succeed, I, I've done so many screenings personally. I mean, I've done maybe 500 over the past several years. Nobody's thrown a tomato at me. <laughs> Nobody said, oh, that's horrible. Nobody said, what a bad idea. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, parents say, I want my kids in that kind of school. Teachers say, I want to teach in that kind of school. Students say, I want to be in that type of school. And then what our initiative is doing is offering these small steps that lead to the changes that will take your school more directionally toward one that is student-centered, that has real-world connections, that have trusted teachers who are supported to create learning experiences that bring out the best in very different ways but to bring out the best in their kids. Well, I certainly hope that I'll have an opportunity to cross paths with you in the future, because as I said, there's just so much more that I'd like to ask you about and get your ideas on. But again, give us the um, give us the way that we can find out more. What is that website? Yeah, you just go to www.whatschoolcouldbe, singular school, but I think we've set it up so that even if you put in an S there, it's okay. So whatschoolcouldbe.org. And it sort of lays out what we're offering. Everything's free. We love our educators. So we're, we're not in this for money. Uh, you know, it's, it's all philanthropic and, and offered with, you know, respect and humility for the great work being done in our schools and classrooms. Ted, thank you so much. And I'm going to see if I can find a copy of that film. It sounds exciting. Yeah, it's on the site. It's free on the site. Everything I do is free, okay. except to me. <laughs> it costs me money, but it's free to everybody else. Ted Dendersmith, whatschoolcouldbe.org, and some fascinating information as well as that very interesting movie. Don't go away. Special Edition heads outdoors next. Welcome back to Special Edition. Not only does April have Earth Day, it's also considered Earth Month. And Karina Delgado from our Audacity sister station, Washington, D.C.'s 94.7 The Drive, had the opportunity to talk about Mother Earth with the CEO of Conservation International. 
Hey, friends, it's Karina Delgado from The Morning Drive on 94.7 The Drive with a special treat for you on this Earth Day. We got to speak with M. Jane, the CEO of Conservation International, to have a deeper discussion about Earth Day, how we can help, and the effects of the pandemic on our planet. Let's dive right in. Going to be honest with you, things are looking real different than they were last year around this time. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that, please? Well, you know, honestly, like last year, we basically had to put Earth Day on hold. So all the celebrations, all the events, all the planning, you know, we were facing an uncertainty in terms of what our future looked like of unparalleled proportions. And so many of those activities were were delayed or kicked back. The challenge, of course, is that, you know, this is quite literally the most important decade for humanity. Science is very clear on this. What we do over the next 10 years will affect the course of our planet, of humanity, for probably the next 300 years or more. So we're now already one year back. It's almost like doing a 10-lap race, and you you haven't left the starting gate, uh, and one lap's gone. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of urgency uh, to our steps this year, and I think we really need to get going. Well, speaking of that one lap specifically, I think a lot of people are under the impression that we are ahead uh, in this race because of the pandemic. But I, I heard that that's not necessarily true. Yeah, no, not necessarily true. So I think it's a mixed record. Uh, so certainly some things about emissions in terms of climate change did uh, tick downwards. So we obviously traveled less by air. Cruise ships were in harbors. So in industrial production dropped. But the world's coming back with a bit of a vengeance uh, in, in kind of the good way. Like, you know, production is ramping up and I think people will be in a hurry to catch up. So I don't see that trend sort of lasting very long. Mm-hmm. I think more worryingly this past year, you know, things like deforestation, forest fires, uh, illegal poaching, uh, things like that, uh, activities that harm the environment actually ticked up in many places mm. because there were fewer people watching because there were fewer resources available for monitoring. There were fewer park guards. There were fewer people in the forest. Sure. And so what you're finding is a real mixed bag, whereas, you know, in some cases, yes, emissions did decrease, but in other cases it actually went up. And my big worry is that as next year, as, as this sort of next you know, year opens up before us, we don't go back to making the same mistakes we've done for the past few decades. Right. It's time for us to move forward for sure. We got to learn from our mistakes. Uh, Can you speak for a moment about what's going on in Kenya? Kenya, you know, to be honest, has a fairly strong park service and and a fairly strong conservation community. So ethics on conservation are pretty strong. But, you know, a lot of Kenya, a lot of the parks, a lot of the protected areas, the natural areas are really dependent on tourism, mm-hmm. ecotourism, if you like. And when tourism came to a halt, some of the most fabled landscapes in Kenya, like the Masai Mara Game Reserve, you know, where if you, you know, turn on television and watch it, you'll see, you know, the wildebeest migrations crossing the river, you know, all of those huge migrations of animals take place essentially on community land. And the reason these communities end up protecting this landscape is because they're getting revenue from tourism. But that went to almost zero last year because international travel 
you know, came to a, to a halt and people couldn't go there. Oh, I see. So we, Conservation International, along with some others, stepped in. And in that case, we provided a loan um, called the Mara Rescue Fund, uh, basically a loan program to tide these communities over until we think tourism can recover and, and, and you know, uh, bring back some funding to these communities. Well, that's outstanding. So obviously doing big things with Conservation International, but small things make a difference too. So can you tell our listeners what are some things that they can do in order to help on Earth Day? Well, I urge folks to go check out um, our website. So, you know, visit conservation.org backslash tips. And we've got lots of little tips and tricks for you to reduce your impact on Earth Day. I think for me, you know, as I try to navigate this, I think small actions and big actions both matter. Mm. You got to do them both. It's almost like being a conscious consumer or being a conscious citizen. So first and foremost, I would really urge everyone to get a little bit involved. You know, dip your toe in, get to know a local organization or international organization like ours or any of the others. Just get a little more informed. In terms of your own personal life, the thing that I really watch for now is what I cook, how much food I waste. Mm. And it turns out that your home really is kind of the big way in which you have an impact on climate. And if you're smart about what you buy and smart about how little you waste, you not only save money, but you're actually saving the planet as well. And then when you think about travel, you know, I know for a fact that I am obviously going to travel for work in the future, but I'm going to do fewer trips. I'm going to stay in country longer. So when I go, I'm doing fewer flights, but when I'm there, I'm taking more time to really learn about the place. So change those habits just a little bit as well. And then support companies that have high environmental standards. One of the things that I really noticed last year was virtually every corporate partner that Conservation International works with, whether it's MasterCard or Apple, um, you know, or P&G, they didn't stick with it. They doubled down. They really accelerated their environmental commitments. So mm-hmm. ask companies to do that, support them. And then, of course, you know, politics does matter. Get engaged. Ask your represented elected uh, representatives what they're doing about nature, what they're doing about the environment. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. And for our listeners that would like to get more involved, you can log on at conservation.org. Brought to you by Odyssey's One Thing program. Physician's assistant with MedExpress, Dawn Webster, tells us who we also share the outdoors with. So one of the biggest things we worry about during the spring are tick bites. And unfortunately, they're very common. And they're even more common after a milder winter like we've had. What we want to watch out for is if we are outside, we want to try to uh, wear long sleeves, long pants, any exposed skin, we want to spray with bug spray. And essentially, we just want to be very vigilant about checking after coming inside and, and looking for them. Now, normally we would think ticks might be on our animals. And the other thing you have to think about is that we treat our animals with flea and tick prevention. So if a tick does jump on them, a lot of times they fall off in our house. So sometimes we even get ticks on us without being outside in the woods or in high grass. So we see one of these. What should I do? If you're comfortable trying to remove it by yourself, you can. If you're not, definitely head to your doctor to a urgent care like MedExpress. We can certainly take care of it for you. But if you do want to try to remove it by yourself, 
the easiest thing to do, as long as it's an area you can see well, if not, you're going to have to have someone help you, is to use a pair of tweezers with nice, straight, fine tips. And you want to grab the tick as close to the skin as possible and pull it straight out. And they actually say now that if there does look like there's a little piece of it still in the skin, that we just let it go. We don't try to dig it out anymore because studies have actually found that all that digging and poking around actually is one of the things that leads more to a skin infection, which can actually be more dangerous than the tick sometimes. How would you even know that it was there? Well, that makes it tough. Sometimes you don't. So sometimes you're in the shower, you feel something and you're like, "Mm, I don't really remember that bump being there. So yeah, you would have to just kind of really feel the parts of your body that you can't see. And one of the most common places we find them is in the scalp. So it's really important to, you know, fill your hair and your scalp very well too after being outside. If you are able to remove it on your own, should you keep it and bring it to your doctor's office as well? So there's a couple of schools of thought behind that. One of the schools of thought is that if it can be identified as a deer tick, then you do have a little bit more to worry about in terms of Lyme's disease because they are the biggest, um, most prevalent carrier of Lyme's disease. The problem is most providers aren't wonderful at identifying them. They um, look very different in different stages of life. So even if they don't look like a deer tick, it may just be they're too small and they haven't actually developed the the characteristics that we're used to looking for. It can almost give you a false sense of security if you take it in and show it to the doctor. And they're like, yeah, that doesn't look like a deer tick. It still could be. And even if it's not, it still could carry lines. So it certainly doesn't hurt, but it's also not something you can truly depend on either. Now, there are places that you can send the tick to different universities. There's a school in Rhode Island that does it. I even believe Penn State does it. But you could send them your your deceased tick and they will send you an email that tells you the type of tick it is, if it's a male or female, how long it was attached. They can tell that by looking at um, the amount of blood that was in its body. I do think that there's a fee for that. But if it's something that you know, you're truly interested in, it, it certainly is a, another option. But in terms of making sure to save it or getting all worked up, if if you don't or you forget, it really isn't that big of a deal because we will treat you with the prophylactic antibiotics if we need to, regardless of what type of tick it was or what type of tick we think it was. And you're mentioning antibiotics. Is there something that we should put on us if we do happen to remove one, some kind of antiseptic or anything? Well, it is good to clean the area with either soap and water, rubbing alcohol, really any skin cleanser, just to make sure. And that's more to prevent a secondary skin infection just from the puncture wound, the bite itself. But in terms of Lyme disease, so if the tick is um, attached for longer than 36 hours, it can transmit Lyme disease if the tick indeed has it. In order to prevent that from happening, if it's caught within just a couple days of being attached, we can give you a one-time dose of antibiotics that will prevent you from getting Lyme disease if the tick did have it. If you're not sure how long it was attached or if you end up with any of the true symptoms of Lyme disease, then you end up getting tested and put on a longer course of antibiotics. So there are multiple options for treatment. So let's talk about some of our other biting friends. We have mosquitoes and some people are allergic to them. So mosquitoes typically are harmless um, most of the time. 
they'll cause a red witch, uh, itchy welt at the, the area they, they bite you. The most important thing with mosquitoes is to truly try not to scratch it because when you scratch it, again, you break open the skin and you increase the risk of getting a skin infection. Are there things that you can put on it that might be able to reduce the itch? There's antihistamine creams. There's also creams that have some lidocaine in it, which will help with the pain also. In addition to that, you can take over-the-counter antihistamine um, pills, which will help internally reduce the itching as well. Bees and wasps, and they're scary, especially, again, (laughs) some people are allergic. If you are allergic to them, then yes, it can be very scary. It can be very dangerous. And what do we do in that case? So if you do get bit and you don't know that you have any type of allergy and you're not having any of the scary symptoms, which are swelling of your face or lips, difficulty breathing, feeling lightheadedness, um, hives, if you're not having those symptoms, then you can try to remove the stinger. If you see one with tweezers, you want to apply ice. You want to wash the area with soap and water. And then you can use a over-the-counter either hydrocortisone cream or anti-itch cream just to help with the itchiness and discomfort. However, if you do have those scary symptoms that we worry about anaphylaxis with, then you're going to want to call 911 and take a antihistamine like Benadryl if you have it. Now, if people know that they have an anaphylactic allergy, they're going to have an EpiPen at home and they can use that. And still, they're still going to have to call 911, but they can use the EpiPen also. But if they don't have that EpiPen, then the most important thing would be to call 911 because the first responder that comes will have one and will be able to get that epinephrine started, which is the most important aspect in stopping that anaphylactic reaction. And are there differences between getting stung by a wasp, getting stung by a bumblebee, getting stung by a honeybee? Are there differences in all of those? There are, yeah. So they're all different types of of insects. And unfortunately, it's really tough to know, even if you are allergic to one, you may not be allergic to all of them. Um, some of them are no- notorious for having, you know, more painful stings. Um, Some, like honeybees, they say typically aren't going to bother you at all. Those are the ones that you don't even really have to swat away because they're not interested in you. Um, But the wasps, the hornets, those are the more aggressive ones. And those are the ones I actually think can sting you multiple times and, and often will because they're very aggressive. So they are all different. But in terms of the anaphylactic reaction, most people aren't going to be allergic to all of them, but unless they're tested, there's really no way to know. A lot of people may, just like in a mosquito bite, get a welted area. So would that be something that would be cause for alarm or is it when you actually get to the point where you have trouble breathing? So just a welt isn't as concerning. Now, if you get hives all over your body, then yes, you're having a systemic reaction. But just one red spot in the area of the sting is pretty typical. And that's what we expect with a normal local reaction from from an insect bite or sting. Anybody that I've missed? Spiders. We can talk about spiders. So like the other ones, most of the time, spider bites are very harmless. However, there are a couple spiders that we do have to be, you know, more worried about, like black widow spiders and brown recluse spiders. Now, their bites are very, very rare. However, they can cause serious um, problems. 
So those are things that you have to be aware of if you live in the areas of the United States where those spiders live, which unfortunately can be in Pennsylvania when we're talking about the brown recluse spiders. And most of the time you would find those in the outdoors, correct? Yes. Just like their name says, the recluse, they typically hide from us. They do not come. They don't come out. They don't want to be bothered. So sometimes you will find them in places like wood piles that you haven't touched for a couple years, maybe in the back of a shed under a whole bunch of old tools that you haven't messed with. They, they go to places and live in places where they won't be bothered. So that's typically where you're going to find them. And what do we do for those? Well, if you do think you've got to find one of those, you do need to go and seek medical attention because unfortunately their bites and their venom can cause tissue death. Um, Ischemia is what we call it. And it can be treated. It just has to be monitored very, very closely. So it's one of those things. If you think it could be a brown recluse bite, you need to go to the doctor, to an urgent care, wherever you can and, and show them and be monitored. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. 